Hello, welcome to Stages. I'm Peter Ayers, and today my guest is theatrical and concert producer Ender Markey. Ender Markey was born in Dublin, Ireland. He trained on a scholarship to Lane Theatre Arts in London, studying musical theatre. Upon graduation, he worked as a singer and actor in Ireland and the UK. He appeared in the Irish premiere of Stephen Sondheim's Follies, alongside Lorna Luft, Mary Miller, Dave Willits and Millicent Martin. Subsequent work included the role of Rick in the cult musical A Slice of Saturday Night in London and Dublin. In 2002, Ender moved to Australia and worked extensively around the country on television, theatre, concerts and cabaret. His first foray into theatre producing arrived in 2011 with the celebrated production of Side by Side by Sondheim. Indermarkey Presents was quickly formed and the company has proceeded to develop and present works on the local and international stages, working with some of the world's leading practitioners of musical theatre. Among the works he's presented are Do You Hear the People Sing, a celebration of the work of Bubil and Schonberg, Defying Gravity, a concert honouring the extensive work of Stephen Schwartz, the musical Blood Brothers, and cabaret and concert performances by stars of musical theatre, Ruthie Henshaw, Geraldine Turner and Bobby Fox. Indermarkey joined stages to discuss both vantage points, working on stage and behind the scenes, seemingly pulling together the impossible. Great entertainments featuring enormous talents on vast stages. And to share some exciting news regarding the projects he has heading our way in 2020. How was your day? Long days at the moment. Because you're pulling together all sorts of projects? All sorts of projects all over the world. So first, I usually wake up about five. And Is it, I suppose you're doing international phone calls? Yes, international phone calls at the beginning and at the end of the day. And then... Australia in the middle. So it's at the end of the day. At the end of the day. <laughs> Everything is a song title. We'll segue into that <laughs> a little bit later. So tell me, do you have a favourite show? Yeah, I do. And it, it has to be Les Mis. It's, right. it's the show that, for as long as I can remember loving musicals, and I, I loved songs from it before I was aware of the musical. I'd heard covers of I Dream to Dream and Empty Chairs and Empty Tables and then then I discovered the musical later and just absolutely fell in love with it. It, was, it would have been about 1989 when I first discovered it and then I saw it for the first time in 1992. Have you ever performed it? No. No. It's my only regret as a, and former, a former performer is having not done it. Uh, what role would you have liked to play any of them. Any of, like, they're any, all pretty good, aren't yeah, they? They'll, they'll get their star yeah. turn. I, I, I was, certainly wasn't going to be, like, when I was auditioning for it, I was young, I was in my 20s, so I was, I was never going to be a Marius or an Angera, so I would have been one of the students and quite happily. A tall Gavroche. A very, a very tall Gavroche. <laughs> so does that mean your favourite writing team would be uh, Bobiel and Chambeau? Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, I love Miss Saigon, I love La Révolution Française, um, some of Pirate Queen is incredible. Claude Michel has written a couple of ballets as well, which are really beautiful. So I think, you know, of course I love I love some Andrew Lloyd Webber, I love some Sondheim, some Jerry Herman. It's it's not I'm not exclusive to the the two French guys, but um, Les Mis is the kind of the the musical that really kind of cemented in me what musical theatre could be. They've written quite a, quite a bit of repertoire, as you just sort of listed there. Why has the Pirate King and uh, Le Revolution not had more exposure, more production. 
Pirate Queen. Pirate Queen. Sorry. Pirate Queen. What did I say? Pirate King. Yeah. Oh, see, <laughs> I've got Gilbert. It's a very different show. Yeah. Um, well, the Revolution Francaise, I think, was probably a, a really good blueprint for Les Mis. That happened in the 70s. It was a very big hit in France, and the album was very successful. And then I think it, it taught them that they could they could create amazing shows. Was that a similar model to Superstar and Evita? With, with they, putting the album out first and then... No, it, was a, it was a live performance right. and they made an album of the live performance and it, it had, as far as I know, it had been the first kind of French musical and it was very successful. Claude Michel Schoenberg played was it Louis Sixteenth. Yeah, one of the Louis. He, um, and so it goes back to this. When I've been researching, um, researching them for a project that I'm working on at the moment, which we'll talk about later, um, there's some kind of archival from way back when. It's it's kind of cool to watch and see them in action. They kind of see how the see how it develops and see how their kind of confidence as writers and their skill developed into creating Les Mis, which was only in in Paris was 1980. The Pirate Queen had a big concert, I think, in New York. Has that been recorded? Is it the one that no, the no. Pirate, Pirate Queen was produced by the, the couple that produced Riverdance, and it was kind of their next project, I think probably about 10 years ago, maybe actually 15 years ago. And it just didn't take. It's a gorgeous score, and it just, it, you know, it, I think it lasted for 10 weeks on Broadway. And it's, it's one of those things that's got great songs in it, um, who played the lead on Broadway? Stephanie J. Block. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And you know, she It's one of her first big shows. It was her yeah, it was yeah. her first leading leading role. Oh no, um, she'd done Boy from Oz. Um but yeah, they'd they had they just didn't couldn't replicate the success they needed to to make it run. But it's worth listening. Worth listening to. And Martin Gares had a, a few tries to sort of make it and work. And they're, they're still re- working on a version of it at the moment. Because again, it's a lovely score. Yeah, and, and it's a, a good story, a great story, yeah. and um, I think they're going back to its original kind of operatic roots. Um, and I think they're well. I know that they're developing that at the moment. You grew up in Dublin. I did. What was that like? It was nice. Yeah, I appreciate it more now than I did then. I was really keen to leave. Um, and I did as we I, all are. Yeah, from yeah. Where we grow up, yeah. And I, I did when I was when I was sixteen. I left. Um, I moved to London. I just a town called Epsom in Surrey, just outside of London. That's where Lane Theatre Arts. Yes. Yeah, which is that, that was very young to get a scholarship at sixteen. Yeah, and um, then moving countries. Or? Yeah, I was I was lucky that the college. Well, I was I was really lucky that my best friend had gone to Ballet Rombert the year before me and was in a similar kind of situation. He was, I think he was even younger. Um, and he had, my parents had seen that he had survived it and had been really happy and that, that you know, he had done A-levels and continued his, his academic education and while he was studying dance. So they, they kind of knew that what it could be. And then I, they kind of said to me that I could get it out of my system and go and audition for colleges. There was no kind of funding available at that time in Ireland to pay for these fees, which were in the tens of thousands of pounds a year. So they let me go thinking, well, they'll get it out of a system. And um, I went and auditioned, and Betty Lane, God love her, um, gave me a scholarship on the spot. She was a, an ex-ballerina? She's a, an ex-dancer right. um, and has, has run 
when I was at Lane Theatre Arts in, from 93 to 96, it was the 21st year of the college in 95. So, um, and she's, I mean, she can spot talent. I'm not, I'm not, I'm talking that in general, not about yes, myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I meant. But in terms of the, the people who've been through the college, people who, like, I've seen it, people come in kind of really kind of green and she pushes them and she's, she's strict. She's, She's really strict. I, I looked at the website, and uh, the alumni is, is huge, and yeah. they're all working in musicals in the West End. Yeah, and but even lots of choreographers, lots yes. of um, directors, Victoria Beckham as well. Right. Um, people like Kerry Ellis, Ruthie Henshaw, Lee Latchford Evans from Steps, um, Louise Doom, and loads and loads and loads of people who are who are doing so well. So and that's what I mean. She can she can spot talent and she she knows what she's doing. And it's it's still a great college. And it, like you could see any West End show, and there's a chunk of people from Lanes, especially the dancing shows like Cats and Forty Second Street. That massive production of Forty Second Street a couple of years ago, I think fifty percent of the ensemble were from Lanes. Wow. It's so she's, I, and I, I went in in my audition. She said, "Oh, have you ever danced before?" And I said, "Well, no, never." She goes, "Don't worry, we'll te- we'll teach you that." And they never quite succeeded. Um, but I was there for three years, and I loved. I, in hindsight, I loved it. I didn't quite love it when I was going through it, but yeah, I was a bit the same at Whopper. Um, I enjoyed everything, but the dance classes were challenging. I enjoyed putting on tights and then standing there in the corner and watching. I had <laughs> I, I had a teacher, a ballet teacher, who said when I. I, I would stand ready to go across the, the floor and I'd stand there and she went, look at you, your feet are beautifully pointed and your arms are lovely and then you move and it all goes horribly wrong. <laughs> and she, she said, you're like Nijinsky, the racehorse. <laughs> so, yeah, I was, I was never, never going to be a dancer. What was access to training in Ireland like? Did, were there many schools at no, all? No, there was none. And no. there, still, there still isn't. Really? The, the schools that are there really exist to get people to a standard to audition for colleges in the UK. But with companies like, you know, the Abbey, are there drama schools? Some good drama schools. Yeah. The, oh. the Abbey, um, the Gaiety School of Acting is good. There's, um, Trinity College has a good drama course as well. There's one called The Lear, um, which, which looks quite good as well. But it's it's hard. There's no work there, and the tours that go through Ireland all all come from the UK. So you're not missing out on anything in Ireland by being in the UK. Did you go to the Abbey much? My very first up? my very first job was in the Abbey when I was eleven. Oh, on stage? Yeah, on stage. What was the play? A Dylan Thomas play called "The Child's Christmas in Wales," right. and I was a carol singing child at the beginning. And I literally sang um, in the bleak midwinter, and then got sent home. But it was. Fun. So I, I went. My mum took me to see plays, like and like things like um, first thing I remember seeing at the Abbey was Brendan Behan's The Queer Fella. Um, probably not appropriate <laughs> stuff for it. I think I still have the program. So I was I would have been nine when I saw that, um, and I remember. But I remember going to like one, you know, an odd child. But um, my fav- one of my favourite things when I was little was the importance of being earnest. The Michael Redgrave the film yeah. film yeah. and I, like. Whereas kids now watch Finding Nemo, that was the kind of stuff that you I used to watch. Yeah, and I, I, still, I still love it. I have a, I found a copy of it online, um, and I, I'd watch that. And I, Margaret Rutherford. Yes, yeah, that, yes. The, the the iconic. Yeah. Um, Lady Bracknell. Lady Bracknell. That's it. And so I saw that. I loved the play on the stars, like all the all this kind of Irish. Um, Playwrights, that, yeah. which, Samuel the, Beckett. And, yeah, we never saw any Samuel Beckett. Right. Um, but 
it was going to the Abbey and the Gate Theatre as well, yeah. which is a gorgeous little theatre in Dublin. So I saw, but I also got taken to see musicals. The very first stage show I ever saw was Annie when I was three. And, uh, and that was a tour that was coming through. It was, it was a, the girl who had, a girl called Jacinta White, who had um, been one of the original Annies in the West End, was from Dublin. And she played it in Dublin. And it, I don't think anything has ever since then run any, I think it ran for about nine months, whereas Lamey's ran for three months in Dublin. So like, you know, Wow, they, Annie was big. Yeah, it was huge. And she's, um, I, I was absolutely in love with her when I, was, when I was three. And I used to see her school plays. I used to see everything, like pantos, every single thing that she did. And she's, she's still awesome. Um, so I, I saw, I saw, I was exposed to all those things. And like the first time I went to London was in when I was fifteen, and we had a week. My mum took me for a weekend in London. We saw Cats, Lamies, and Miss Saigon. The big three. The big three. Yeah. So what? Obviously, going to all of those shows all the time uh, sparked your love of music theatre. Was, was there anything in particular which which spoke to you? Or? I don't know. The very first movie I ever saw was Grease. Right. And my mum jokes now that it was the first time that I'd stay quiet for three hours. And like, whereas I'd wriggle around and be a naughty or whatever, for Grease I stood on the seat in the cinema for the whole movie and was just completely enthralled by it. And I, I don't know why or what, what it was about it, but it, that's, that's the way it was. And I had a, a neighbour when I was growing up she was a, a, drama, a part-time drama teacher. Her name was Joan Collins. You do? Uh, no. <laughs> she, and, um, she, she, she still lives there, and she's, um, I'm, I'm friends with her son. And she, recently, like in the last couple of years, that story was relayed to me where they were talking about putting on a play with the local kids, and I went into her and I asked her about what she had in mind for lighting. So like that's the, she was kind of saying she wasn't surprised that they ended up producing because that was kind of you're shocking. aware of all of the I was aware production of, elements I was yeah. aware of those things and bossing people around it was I, I think I think I always kind of knew that I'd end up being producing because I was always the one that was getting it's kind of you know not an original story but I was the one that was getting people together to try and put shows on from the time I was quite young people who had absolutely no interest in doing it. Were you having singing lessons in Ireland before you, yeah. you moved out? Yeah. So. There was a performing arts, the National Performing Arts School in Dublin. Um, I had some singing lessons there. And um, that was, I kind of had a really great core group of friends. My, you know, my, my best friend is still my friend now from those days. Um, and then I went to a singing teacher later on as well. I went, to, I went to this guy called Graham Ripley, who was the musical director of that production of Annie, and you'd pay him £20 for a half-hour lesson, and two and a half hours later you'd still be there, and he'd just be going through, going through old scores. And I learnt more about repertoire yep. from him than probably ever again, and like, got to sing great songs, and he'd write naughty little ditties and get me to sing them, and um, he was great. He was really great. And he used to, he used to send, send me really awful letters, hilarious but awful in letters, telling me I was a pain in, pain in his backside. And he sent one to my, sent one to my mother saying so he understood why she'd sent me to England. <laughs> in the back of me. I'm, I've, I've still got them. He was incredibly witty and incredibly charming. Were your parents happy about a career in the arts? Um, I don't think they ever... Th- 
I, I think that they, my mum is still kind of coming to terms with whether there's a career. Um, I think they... It, it, it's pretty huge for them to begin to understand. I remember my parents as well. It's yeah. Sort of, but what are you going to do for a day job? You know? Liter- yeah. lit- literally that. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think now it looks more like a, a stable job. I'm, you know, I'm producing, so I'm, and I've got things in the pipeline for the next two or three years. So I think things look a little bit more settled than they, they have when I was performing and I was going from gig to gig and just not knowing myself what was going to come next. But they, they, they support it and they're always, I mean, they were always very happy for me to do it and they wanted me to be happy, but I didn't think, I never, I, I'm not sure they quite ever expected it to, to last as long as it has. What was your first pro gig upon graduation? Follies. Follies. Yeah, um, and that was back in Ireland. It was in Ireland. Yeah, so a I was stellar cast. Yeah, amazing cast. Yeah. It was one of those experience. I was doing a musical called A Slice of Saturday Night in London, and during at the beginning of that, I got off of this. I think it was two, three week gig in Follies with Lorna Loftus, Phyllis, Mary Martin, no, not Mary Martin, Mary Miller as um, Sally, and. Millicent Martin. Millicent Martin as Carlotta with Dave Willits as Ben and a host, a host of Irish celebrities filling in other parts and I would have been mad to turn it down. It was so you were a, a young someone? I was No, I was ensemble. Right, okay, great. On my three years of training, like I was singing and dancing ensemble. But, but that's the perfect sort of um, opportunity also to, to be on stage and, and watch those greats work. Yeah, and yeah. in rehearsal, and I always remember Millicent Martin, there was you know, tensions were frayed and um, people were playing up. And Millicent Martin came in, I think, on the Thursday of the rehearsals and changed the entire mood in the rehearsal room just by being so elegant and so professional and so kind to everybody that all the people who'd been playing up felt they had to kind of pull their heads in. And I, I learned more from experiences like that than watching the people throwing tantrums. And Of course, she was one of the great collaborators on that original side by yeah. side. Yeah. So, the, so that so that that was the beginning of a period. So the following year, for the same director, I went back and did side by side by Sondheim with um, Brendan O'Carroll, who oh really, <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, Mrs. Brown, Mrs. Brown, yeah. Uh, he was our narrator, and he was as naughty as you can imagine, um, and a, an Irish. So obviously a huge uh, celebrity in Ireland. Yeah, as a, as a comedian I, for, before Mrs. Brown. Yeah, so Mrs. Brown has had incarnations over the past kind of 25 years, I think. And it's um, it started off as kind of two-minute radio slot. And then he he's written, there's three books which you should check out. One's called The Mammy, The Chiselers, The Granny, and The Owl One, which is four books he's written one recently. <laughs> uh, the fir- the fir- they were a trilogy, and then he wrote another one. And they're about the same character, but they're beautiful, beautiful, heartbreaking books. So it's not as broad as the the sitcom is, and there was a movie. But even that sitcom, as broad as it is, has has beautiful moments of pathos. Yeah, and, and he, that's what he's he's so he's so great at that. But there is a movie from nineteen ninety seven, which stars Angelica Houston as Mrs. Brown. Wow. Called I think it's actually called Mrs. Brown, but it's based on the Mammy. So so anyway, we did this side by side, and Brenda was the narrator, and he was you know appropriately naughty every night, and. Um, a couple of other friends and I, we just did it for a few nights in Dublin and that started off me kind of producing but also um, wanting to del- delve into a bit more Sondheim. A Slice of Saturday Night, which mm. was a, a pastiche uh, 
1960s musical? All of the songs. It was set in 1960s. It was very, very popular in the late 80s, early 90s. Right. Um, and Quite I did, a cult following. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And had been, I'd seen it in Dublin, where it had had a, a, like a, a long run a couple of times in a theatre called Andrews Lane Theatre. And I went to London and ended up doing it there. And then the guy that was doing it in Dublin got sick and they asked me to come back into Dublin to close it for six weeks, which was great. So I got to do it again with, I think, four hours notice. Different production. So that was fun. What was your go-to song at auditions? The go-to song was (laughs) The Sun from Metropolis because nobody else knew it and the sheet music wasn't available. And Graham Ripley, that's... Um, singing teacher I told you about he wrote out the sheet music for me right that's a great show actually I, I only saw it once an amateur production well it was a university production I, most Melbourne. people only saw it once yeah yeah <laughs> did you see it no I've never seen I did it at right. college I did it when I was at Lane's it's quite an exciting score I think the ballads are absolutely gorgeous yeah. and everything else is a bit messy but um, and the, the Brian Blessed Brian Blessed singing his singing his socks off but at, at the same then it has Judy Kuhn and Graham Bickley yeah who are two incredible singers, so it's worth it's it's worth delving through. Maybe delve through the highlight CD rather than the whole two two CD. <laughs> so where did you land in Australia, and why come to Australia? First time in 1999 on a holiday, right. and then I thought, you know, I'd make a, a tax deduction and I'd um, I'd see if I could book some gigs. I booked a gig at the Albury. Remember the Aubrey on the Aubrey, Street? Yes, yes. And I think they booked me thinking I was a drag queen. They said, oh, yeah, come and do a number. And then I arrived in my suit. <laughs> they thought you were Edna. Mark. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody said Dame Ender Average. Um, and so I did that and that was really fun. And then I, I kind of got to know some people. And then I came back um, and did a cabaret show in Melbourne. And then everyone was like, you know, if you lived here, you'd get so much work. And all of those people vanished when I moved here a year later and I, I came back to do the Adelaide Cabaret Festival in 2002 and I've stayed since then. So I've been here for 17 years. Is it difficult to sort of arrive in a, in a new village and sort of you know, get to know the people who can help your career and employ you? And Was it hard to break in? People were very kind. Yeah. Um, I'm not... I was also... I was like 25 and... People, I was pretty lucky with the people that I, I met when I first arrived. Um, so people were pretty kind. Um, but I also had to work for it as well. So I was kind of doing lots of different things. and you know, Just to get your name out there and be exposed. Yeah, and I was pretty good at self-promotion. So then somebody said, oh, can you help me promote my show? So I did that, which was a Baccarat show. And that, so it just kind of, it kind of happened. And I had you know all sorts of temp jobs in the meantime to, to get me through. But... But all the time, I suppose, acquiring skills which are going to feed into where you are now. That's I've, that's the thing, right? So I've had all these temp jobs doing various, you know, working in recruitment, working in HR departments, and it's now the, um, I always say it's the perfect storm of experience for what I've ended up doing. So, you know, um, running running a small business with, with big ambitions. Well, it's right because people often say, you know, I want to be a producer. How, how do I become a producer? Yeah. And it is all that, just that, that life experience bouncing around yeah, and sort it is. of taking from various jobs. Um, also, a lot of stage managers graduate yeah. to being producers because of that hands-on experience. And it's, it's, managing, it's managing egos and it's managing just people in general. And it's un- understanding where it's important to have an ego, that the most important thing is 
the show. And if, if that's not everybody's main focus, then it's all going to go horribly wrong. And I've kind of been really lucky with... I always say in the first day of rehearsals that we have a really strict no assholes policy. And I, that's the key, I think, is, is getting people on board. And you can kind of, you know, people are usually quite willing to to do that if it's if it's for the good of the piece rather than... So you get up on the first day of rehearsals and obviously welcome the company and then just go through gently some yeah. rules that we're all going to play by. Yeah, I, I kind of I tend to do it beforehand because you don't want to re- hire them and then realize that they <laughs> you've made a mistake. So, you, like when you talk with talking with um, whoever it is, you kind of I, te- I like to kind of meet people and get to know them first, and just before make sure, you agree to sort of come on board. Yeah, together. or before they agree, yeah, so yeah. that they they get to assess me as well. Because you've had some concerts with some huge Broadway and West End yeah, stars in been, them as well. You know, we're talking Betty Buckley and mm, Ruthie Henshaw. Betty Buckley, um, Sutton in, Foster interviewed me. All right. I, I spoke to her manager once. I haven't spoken to him since uh, because I, I spoke to Betty for the for the rest of the time, and she's so astute and so, knows exactly what she needs to make her performance, which are always brilliant. And it works out that we could we found a way that we could work together to do that. And and she'd been to Australia before with those concerts. In she'd Melbourne. never been to Sydney though. No, right. So I brought it to Sydney for the first time, which is to do this um, Stephen Schwartz show, Define Gravity, at the Theatre Royal with, with Sutton Foster and Aaron Tveit and Helen Dallimore and David Harris and Joanna Ampel. And I had not, I mean, you couldn't have foreseen how, how well it would have been received and how incredible everybody's performances would. And, and Betty, Betty was incredible. She came, you know, I booked her to stop the show and she, she did three, three, three shows running. And I love her. I absolutely love her. And I'd, I'd work with her again in a second. So you come up with a concept like Defying Gravity, the, the celebration of Stephen Schwartz. How do you go about casting it? Do you, do you look for <laughs> artists who have a, a relationship with the, the repertoire? or We did a workshop of it. So I, um, I created it with Andrew Pohl, the director, and Guy Simpson the, as our musical director and conductor. And we did a workshop of it, so we knew kind of what the show was, and then we, we knew that it was going to be the soprano and the the belter and the um, the, the character lady. The, and the, yeah, the, we yeah. we kind you kind of knew because of the songs what what we needed, and um, we did this workshop. We did it for a week, and it was like forty degrees in this church hall in the inner west. Um, but it was it was worth it because we got to see a that there was a, an interesting show there, and b just how it could be constructed so that when we did the actual show six months later, whatever it was, we were able to cut a lot of wait, save a lot of time. So I, I I knew that I wanted a name in it. I knew that we um, had David Harris and Helen Dallimore, and because I'd worked with both of them before and I love them and I, and they're fantastic. So I wanted to include them and Helen had obviously been the original Glinda in Wicked in the West End so there was that association so there's that and I don't think she gets enough recognition for that which is you know that was a big deal huge right Um, so we then I knew I wanted the name and I thought I offered it to Sutton Foster who couldn't do it and her agent said well you know we've got other people as well so then Aaron Tveit came on came up and we were waiting to see if he could do it, and while that and you did, got him at the right stage too before he's become mega. Yeah, we, we, he came to Australia the day after he flew to Australia the day after he did Greece Live, 
right. So we booked him, and then he they announced Greece Live, and then then they announced it was going to be on TV here, which was perfect timing. And then, but then that wasn't that was a bit wasn't sure that was going to happen, and I that was when I contacted Betty Buckley, and then that that kind of happened quite quickly. And then Sutton Foster was going to be in New Zealand, so it turns out that she was available. And then Aaron became available. So I got, in the space of like 24 hours, all three of them confirmed that they could do it. And they're like, well, I'm not going to say no to one of them, am I? Uh-huh. And that was, that was kind of how it happened. It was just, I always describe it as like spinning plates. And I managed to keep all, all three plates spinning. And Joanna Ampil is incredible. And so I, I wanted to work with her. So, and she, she'd been in Miss Saigon here. So it was nice to bring her back for a little while too. So why Schwartz? Where did that idea germinate? The, it was the repertoire. Yeah. And... Um, I suppose Wicked had just been a huge Wicked had hit. just been here. Uh, Pippin and Godspell had been done fairly recently on Broadway. And, you know, there's, there's a... Mu- then they've got movies like um, Prince of Egypt, which is about to be a West End musical as well. So there was a, there was a lot of um, stuff and he'd written numerous pop songs and and he had had he had shows that had celebrated his repertoire before loads all right loads but i think this is the most successful of them and we're um you know we're we're still going ahead with it we're doing a a version in tokyo in in june next year which will be fun with with the west end cast um and a japanese a japanese special guest because music theatre is quite huge in Asia, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and Wicked and Pippin has Pippin is huge in Japan. They don't, they've never had Godspell, right? So we've changed the the tagline of the show from St- the music of Stephen Schwartz from Pippin to Wicked instead of from Godspell to Wicked because nobody knows what right. Godspell is. Buddha spell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, oh wow! So so you finally got it on on in Japan. Um, Edward, has it played elsewhere in Asia? No, no not yet. So Sydney and Japan. Yes, yeah, so I I couldn't. The Sydney concerts were so great and they created such a buzz and people were like, oh, we want to see it again, but they only wanted to see it with that cast and I couldn't figure out a way of... Getting them back together. Again. Well, there wasn't just... Yeah, it was just so, impossible. Aaron's Sutton's got a TV show and she's about to go, go back to Broadway. She's a, a you know a hectic concert schedule and a baby daughter. Aaron's been on TV and is on in Moulin Rouge and Betty's been on tour in Hello, Dolly. So, and, you know and Helen and David and everybody's been busy and I didn't want to do it unless we had those people again but now we've we're doing it in Japan with a West End cast and kind of um level you know it's 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 a different kind of concept same show but just a different approach to it that's the great thing about theatre isn't it that ephemeral nature that yeah. um you know I was there the night yeah and look people still come up to me and and talk to me about that and it was it was even, even I didn't realize I watched there was a couple of moments um, watching Sutton and Aaron do As Long As Your Mind from Wicked in rehearsal was pretty great and then watching Betty do Meadowlark and just being one of like four people in the room and just being absolutely floored by by a, a rehearsal performance and watching Stephen Schwartz watch Betty Buckley sing Meadowlark was was a really special thing and they're the kinds of things that I, I take away with that. I didn't realise he came out as well was he in it? He wasn't. He he appears on the screen, right? Um, and he also did a conversation with Lee Sales, right? At, before the Saturday matinee for about an hour, which was really cool as well. Um, but he so he he came out and was so helpful and 
you know, so supportive and was is a great source of information about Stephen Schwartz, funnily enough. Um, so yeah, it was it was great, but um, it was finding a way to 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 take it to the next level, which is what we're doing now. So there came, comes a time in a performer's life, I guess, when they decide that they might need to diversify just to sort of have some security and routine. Did you get to a stage at the, with your performing career where you thought, okay, I've got to sort of yeah. do this producing gig full time? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I, I had produced and been in a production of Side by Side by Sondheim, which played at the Seymour Centre quite successfully, with uh, Mark DeFranti, Amelia Cormack and Jessica Rose, the narrator. And we then we we toured it regionally in this is twenty eleven and we toured it regionally and then people were saying, Oh, we want to see it, we want to know what this show is and I didn't feel that we could bring it back to Sydney because it had had its life. And I thought, Oh, why don't we do a, a concert version of it and get lots more people in to do and we'll do it for charity and get lots more people in and we'll do it at the Theatre Royal and it became a thing and it had a band rather than two pianos. And I was I was trying to figure out how to kind of make it a little bit different and I had the idea then of bringing somebody from the West End of Broadway and brought Ruthie Henshaw which was the first time I worked with Ruthie and she came out and she sang three songs and was fabulous and it got it brought the show to the next level in the in the touring version of the show I was the only guy with with the two girls singing the two women who were singing um, and so I got to sing all the songs, whereas in the concert, I, I think I sang two or three, and then there was other people who sang one or two songs each. And at one point during the, during the rehearsals, I was I was watching it and enjoying it, and kind of it hit me that I thought, if I was casting the show, would I cast myself or would I cast these guys? And I kind of, without almost without exception, I thought I would have cast any one of them. And then I kind of thought, okay, it's it, that that's the answer. It's time to. The producing thing is fun, and it's it's time to hang up the old performing shoes. That concert at, at the Theatre Royal was probably one of the most exciting nights I'd ever had, and I kind of thought that was a really good way to bow out, so that was the last time I performed. Mm. So Endemarkey presents... Productions. Endemarkey Productions. Presents. 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 Is born. It, well, yeah. That night. And so uh, Michael Falzon took over from me in the tour... And um, and then Ruthie Henshaw introduced me to Alain Boublil and Claude Michel Schoenberg, and that led to "Do You Hear the People Sing?" So I went from producing this tiny, you know, tiny little fringe show at the Seymour Centre to this great big gala concert in, in uh, which reopened the Shanghai Grand Theatre. Did you ever think this is getting out of hand? Can I do this? Yeah, about about the day before we opened in China, I thought, "What the hell have I done?" Um, it was, because I guess as a producer, you know, financially you need some. Well, they had they had bought the show, right? So they had kind of hired me to to so produce. So it was your role to. Yeah, so there was there was a whole kind of series of events that led to the show not happening in Australia when it was first planned, which it was twenty thirteen, and we we had the kind of we had things ready. We put the production together or the beginnings of it, and then they'd had an inquiry about doing it in China. So then um, Alan and Club Michelle said that I could produce my version in China and it could open. and that's kind of how that started um, and it was it was look it wasn't it wasn't the most calming week of my life but it was so much fun and we had um, 
Michael Ball and Laius Longer were the two headliners, David Harris, Amanda Harrison, and Marisa Mora, who was the original Paris Cossette in Les Mis. Um, and the big, we had like a 100-person choir and a 76-piece orchestra, and it was, wow. it was just massive. And it was, you know, it was, I was living my, you know, I was working with my idols. It was, it was amazing. And it was very successful, and then we did it in, we did it in, the Philippines next. We did it as a charity concert in the Philippines to raise money after Typhoon Yolanda um, with Resorts World in Manila. And we raised $750,000 over two concerts and built 210 houses in a school called the Sun and Moon, which is called the Sun and Moon Village. Fabulous. Yeah. Um, so we did that and then we did it in Taipei. And I've been literally trying, trying to find the right time to get up to Australia. And it's, what, six years later and it's finally happening next year. Da, 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 da. Da, da, da. We'll talk about that in a minute. Okay, so, sorry. So, so just the birth of that Do You Hear the People Sing, are you responsible then for bringing the creatives together and having some sort mm -hmm. of artistic input yeah, so about the, the repertoire that is chosen? Is there any dialogue that links it all? Yeah, so the version that I inherited in 2013, it had been a symphonic concert in the US and I first saw it in Mazatlan in Mexico and I thought you know obviously it's incredible music but I kind of thought oh it it was it didn't feel quite theatrical enough so I've made it more theatrical we've um we've re Alan Claude Michel and I have basically rewritten it from scratch pulled it, pulled all the parts pulled it, pulled it all apart and we're pulling it back together um, so they, we're working with them on kind of, it's more from their point of view talking about, there are, there are things that I don't think people know about them, which I think are really interesting. Um, like Alain Boublil in 19, I don't know, 1980 maybe, wrote a musical based on ABBA songs called Abacadabra. So way before Mamma Mia, which had been very successful in, in France and had had a, a London season at the, I think at the Lyric and Hammersmith with Elaine Page and Brian Blessed. He's the lyricist, isn't Yeah, he? he's the book writer and lyricist. Right, so so he used the Abbott repertoire. Yes, he was a music publisher and he was Abba's music publisher. Right. What was that story about? I don't know, because it's in right. French. Okay. <laughs> I've only seen, but I think it was something to do with fairy tales right. so I think yes, they, they changed yeah they changed the context of the songs and I think some of the lyrics um, so yes yeah, so I wanted to bring those things and Claude Michel Schoenberg has written two beautiful ballets I wanted to bring a little bit of that into it as well and also just some like for the there's a lot of Les Mis geeks out there like me and there's there's a lot of stuff that we, we we're bringing to people that they might not know so which makes it kind of exciting and do you have a narrator no, it's no. the so a mixture of the soloist and Alan and Claude Michel right. on um, on screen. On screen, great, great. So anyway, I mean, I, I've stopped you a couple of times. Tell us, it's coming to Australia. Finally, coming to Australia um, in June 2020, opening at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival on the 12th of June, and going to Sydney on the 16th and 17th. And then finishing in Melbourne on the 19th and 20th of June at the Regent. We're at the State in, in Sydney. And where are you in Adelaide? At the Festival. Festival right. Theatre. Oh, right. And with... And have you cast it? We're in the middle of casting at the moment. We've cast right. Alfie Bow and Leia Salonga coming, um, coming out. David Harris, Amanda Harrison and Joanna Ampil. And um, a couple of surprises, maybe. 
Um, there's um, there's a choir and a, an orchestra, and Guy Simpson is conducting it, and I'm very excited. It's been it, as I said, we've tried to get it for various reasons. From I, I always it had to be the right team. We'd we'd done it so successfully overseas. I wanted to do it as successfully here, so it had to be the right team. So getting people from the composers to casting to venues to everything that you need. It, I was I was kind of I knew that it was the right thing to wait for it, and we've finally got it to the point where everything's everything that I wanted has has become available. So it's going well, to be great. Well, Les Mis is just an extraordinary machine. I mean, you think whenever it's on, the number of people who go to see it who never go to the theatre yeah. at any other time, and and the other comparison I can make is you know I'm aware of you know Les Mis being done by various amateur companies around the country. Mm. And they will do other shows and get very little interest for auditions. The dilemma is, there's, there's literally mm. 200 people wanting to audition and be part of it. It's the best music to sing. It's like, I, I work on, I'm working at the moment, I'm working on Dear the People Sing almost in half, half my time with a couple of other projects. And I still, I can still put Lamey's on when I'm driving. It's tremendously emotive, too. Yeah, I mean, I think which it really cuts to the heart and the, it's, it's that visceral response. Among the best music ever written for the theatre. Look, and let, let the Hong Kong protesters are even Which is using the song. Screw it with my Google ranking. The title of the, the show, title of the title show of is putting our, our website, which is thepeoplesing.com, um, is pushing it down. But, you know, we'll, once we get the show, at, you know, as we talk right now, the show hasn't been announced yet, so we'll, we'll get it back up there. Great. Um have you got a um, an opening night ritual? Are you superstitious in the theatre? I've discovered that I watching. I don't find it relaxing to watch the show with everybody. I kind of like to be able to get out if I need to do a runner if I need to. Um, I, I, I find that yeah, I'm I'm better off standing at the back or in the sand desk or something like that. That's the only. That's the only thing. There's there's no time to have rituals. There's always you're always like gaffer taping something right right as they open the house you don't wear a favorite tie or no none of that i try not to wear ties at the best of times but <laughs> what about reviews do you read them yeah of course yeah i guess you, you as a producer you need to know what uh, everybody i think everybody reads reviews right i think anybody you know. whether they're a performer or yeah, or, yeah. even though most people say they don't from my point of view you kind of have to because you need you know the day after opening night you need to plaster all the the good words across posters and use it for um for marketing but i think there are shows there are shows that need reviews and there are shows that don't how do you go about marketing now because you know we're seeing the demise of the print media so is social media becoming more and more and this important and it's great because it's you can it can be reactive so if something's not working you can change it um defying gravity sold almost exclusive I don't I don't think we did we didn't do posters or flyers for that um, so it was, it was sold exclusively online and we sold out three shows well, so I'm, I'm you know I'm pretty sure that that's you can, you can reach a huge amount of people you know I was I was saying you're not, you're, not, you're not trying to reach everybody we're just trying to reach that kind of two three four five thousand people that are, we know are already engaged in these shows yeah. so it's, it's just finding them and they're usually on Facebook to, you know. Um, Blood Brothers, you've done. Yeah. Will Endemarchy presents present more book musicals? 
Yeah, there's a couple. There's one that I've got that I've been kind of working on. But then these concerts just take up take, so much time. They take up time, and they're it's hard to do. You know, thank God for the haze. But other than apart from the haze, it's hard to get shows on here because if you, to do them at any kind of scale costs millions and millions and millions of dollars, and then we, you know, as everybody always says, we need kind of mid-sized venues so that we can we can have kind of shorter runs and kind of be a bit more kind of artistically adventurous and that was the great thing about Blood Brothers that we played the haze and the haze had given this opportunity for it to to kind of blossom and find its find its way and it was very, it, it was it was the first anniversary production of the haze so they hadn't been around for very long at all so it's like having an off broadway space that um... yeah and it's and you can afford to take risks because the stakes are just lower because it's 100 seats and you know you're not spending you know millions of dollars on venue rental and marketing and you know some, one thing goes wrong and at that point the, there was such hype about the haze as well so it was it was a, another great thing and um, we took it to melbourne as well whereas it was just you know, a much much tougher gig in melbourne but you know you learn from that too well do you hear the people sing is very exciting um i hope that you know you, you really are aiming for the big picture the west end broadway because don't you think there'd be an audience here? Yeah. Um, well, Lame is still running in in London, so that's ongoing, and I, I don't think we can step on their toes. Um, Define Gravity will probably end up in London before. Do you hear the people sing? Um, after Australia, we've we've got you know this. There's always people interested in it. Um, in Asia, in the Middle East, we've had inquiries. So hopefully we can bring it to um, bring it to wherever wherever they they want us. And I've got other shows, I've got other shows. I've got Bobby Fox on tour next year, and I've got Geraldine Turner on tour next for the which will be the fifth year of her Turner's turn. It's a brilliant show. Yeah, yeah she's great. You know, how lucky am I to get to work with these legends? Yeah, great. New, you, new and old. New and old. Um, so uh, by the time people hear this uh, this podcast, uh, you will have announced. Do you hear the people sing? Yes. They can access information on social media. Yep. What's your website? The show's website is thepeoplesing.com and all, all of the social media is The People Sing. So Facebook, um, Twitter, Instagram, it's all The People Sing. Get on to it. Enda, thank you so much. Have you had a Thanks nice time? Me. This is your first podcast. It's my first ever podcast and there's wine. <laughs> <laughs> if I hadn't known that, <laughs> we must have another one. Yes. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Doesn't that all sound very exciting? Bablil and Schoenberg are certainly masters of the musical form and have written an immense repertoire of great show music. The concert is bound to thrill and delight, so if you're a fan of Les Mis or Miss Saigon or Martin Guerre, be sure to get in quick for your tickets. Do You Hear the People Sing plays June 2020 at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival, at Sydney at the State Theatre and Melbourne at the Regent Theatre. Check out the website thepeoplesing.com for more information. That was episode 90 of the podcast stages. Can you believe there are only nine more episodes left for the year? We'll conclude this series on December 22, but before that, look out for each episode as it drops. The remainder of this series has me talk with a couple of composers, an archivist, an educator, a Broadway and West End star, an artistic director, a couple who have enjoyed a lifetime in the theatre, and one of Australia's most beloved actors. I cannot wait to share them all with you. You will have plenty of summer listening, I guarantee, as the show will take a break over January. Thanks for listening. It's great to have your company. I'm Peter Ayers, and you've been listening to Stages. Stages.